Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And looks like you're back in London, right? And so are you, and yet we're still not able to get in the same room. It's because you don't believe my hand luggage only rushed through Heathrow Airport. You didn't think I'd make it here on time. I know, and I was very, very worried about not being able to get to Millwall against Burnley tonight. By the way, I'd probably get you a ticket, Rory, if you fancied it. That's really, really kind. Apparently Millwall, very welcoming, friendly crowd. They they love old Etonians. They sing about them all the time. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> what do you want to talk about this week? Well, we've got loads to talk about, haven't we? I mean, I, I, look, you and I were both away last week when Nicola Sturgeon announced she was stepping down. And I think quite a lot of our listeners thought we should have done an emergency podcast. We should, we, we should explain, one, I was recovering from my hypothermic attack and you were trying to have a few days off. So I think we've both got an excuse. But we're obviously going to talk about the aftermath for, in Scotland of Nicola Sturgeon announcing that. I think we also should talk about the protocol and, and the politics around that. And I think, obviously, with the first-year anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, I tortured myself this morning by watching his speech. Oh, well, wow. Which was pretty grim, to be absolutely frank. And then I know you also want to talk about biodiversity, so I've been mugging up on that as well. Very, very good. Okay. So what do you want to start with? Start with Scotland or start with Ukraine? I think start with the, with Scotland. What did you make of it? Again, my daft role as um, summariser for the for the listeners in the Leeward Islands. Nicola Sturgeon stepped down. Uh, so she's been First Minister of Scotland for over eight years, which is the longest tenure of anyone. Her predecessor, Alex Salmon, did seven years. She came in after the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, which was when Alex Salmon stepped down. And she has been a really dominating figure in uh, Scottish politics. And so much so that now that she stepped down unexpectedly, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the things she said in her resignation speech, most people, I think, even even the keen listeners on the show are going to struggle to know the people that are standing up as her potential successors unless they follow Scottish politics very, very closely. Yeah. And one, one of them uh, who I... I think when I was asked on the Rest is Politics WhatsApp group, who do you think will take over? I think I did say Kate Forbes, but I think she's kind of crashing and burning. Just a little bit on Kate Forbes then. So she, she's fascinating. She's from a wee free background, so Free Church Scotland. Her father did medical work in India, I'm guessing was a, a medical missionary in India. She went to school in India as a young person. And then again, I think later on in life and also went to a Gallic language only school. Um, so very unusual education, both in India and a Gaelic language school. She seems to be incredibly bright. But of course, her religious views have become very, very relevant because the last big push, which Nicholas Sturgeon was associated with, was to try to get this transgender recognition bill mm. through the Scottish Parliament, something we, we've talked about, which in, included 
uh, dropping the age down from 18 to 16, and which was overruled by the UK government on the grounds that they thought that it was interfering with something that should have been a UK government policy. And she said in interviews that she wouldn't have voted for gay marriage, although she would have accepted a vote on gay marriage and wouldn't overturn it. Anyway, your, your thoughts on why she's crashing and burning? I, I think because she so already quite a, a significant number of some of the better known ministers, MPs and MSPs and, and members have said that in the light of her recent interviews where she's made some of these views explicit, they've said that they they can't vote for her. Um, now, it may be her, her line is that this is all a sort of Twitter thing and that out in the real world, members are much more sort of understanding and tolerant. And I think what it's showing is this incredibly interesting uh, and it's it's probably why I did when I did say it. We don't do God. I was not sort of there saying I am an atheist. I was basically saying, I think politics becomes very very difficult when you are th- when it's thought that you're mixing it with religion. Now I watched one of her interviews this morning where the headline was that she's now come out, as it were, against sex outside marriage or against children being born outside marriage. Now she didn't quite say that. But I think the reason why I feel it feels to me like it's crashing and burning is that it's all getting focused onto this issue of her faith. And where I think it's a little bit unfair, I don't know how devout a Muslim uh, Humza Yusuf is, who I think is probably going to win in the end. That's a good question because he, I mean, he was, I think, the first person in the Scottish Parliament to take the oath in Urdu. I think he took it first in English, then in Urdu. Mm. He was a, somebody who did a lot of fundraising for Islamic relief in his youth. I think he, he chaired um, at, at university, I think a Muslim Students Association. So I think he's made no secret of his faith. And I, I imagine it would be interesting to know what his views are on gay marriage as well. But it's in, well, he, uh, and my understanding of that is that he, he wasn't there for the vote when the final legislation was passed, but he had been supportive prior to that. That's my kind of sense of it. But my, I guess the point I'm making is that obviously it's absolutely blatantly clear from everything that she's said in recent days her faith is incredibly important to her. Is that the reason why she's being asked about it? Or is it the fact that it's, to some extent, become a strange thing in our politics to be, as it were, a devout believer? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, and and you're, to, to move on to, to you and maybe a slightly more personal, I mean, Tony Blair is quite a believer, isn't he? He's now, he's now a Catholic, is that right? He is, yeah. yeah. She's tried to say in a lot of these interviews that she's concerned that it's becoming more and more difficult for people with strong religious beliefs to be involved in politics. I, I, I sort of quite liked her formulation when she said that she personally would have voted against gay marriage, but she would have been happy to accept the democratic view of the parliament. But it's difficult for a politician to say. So, for example, I and many others you know, voted for Remain, but then said that we would accept the result of the Brexit referendum, and people never really trusted us mm. uh, to accept the result. I think also what happens, so she's been the finance secretary. So she's been in a very, very significant senior job within the Scottish government, obviously trusted by Nicola Sturgeon, otherwise she wouldn't have had that such an important job. Incredibly young, 32. I'm literally more than twice as old as she is. It's a sort of <laughs> terrifying, horrible thought. But I wonder whether it's that's part of the the equation as well, is that people perhaps have just been a bit surprised that somebody of that generation should come along with, with views that do feel out of step with where I'm sure most young people are on gay marriage, on, on the gender recognition, on abortion, on other issues that she's talked about. And I, but, but I, I, did, I felt a little bit sorry for her in the way that they, everybody seemed to be gunning in on those points 
Yeah. Whereas with yeah. Hamza Yusuf, not so much. Now, maybe that's yeah. maybe that's because they know he's not. I, I sort of feel you either have a faith or you don't. I was obviously really won over by the fact that she spent three years, I think from 12 to 15, in a school in, in UP in India, near Missouri, in a place I know, where she would have studied Indian dance and classical music. And I thought that was a really interesting dimension. Now, just to, to loop back for a second, though, um, let, let's just get back to Nicholas Sturgeon stepping down. So she stepped down with a really striking, brutally honest and quite short resignation speech. Mm. And, um, you know, I teased you slightly on, on WhatsApp about this, that sometimes when you're feeling that you're more tribal, whenever a Tory steps down, you tend to call it a chicken run. But when uh, someone from the left steps down, you tend to be more sympathetic towards the trials and tribulations of being a politician. I did think, though, that there is a sense in which, I don't know whether it's that modern society puts more of an emphasis on a more balanced life or whether politics is just getting more brutal. But the number of people from Jacinta Ardern through to Nicholas Sturgeon who are saying very, very frankly, this just doesn't work for me. It's brutal. There's no privacy. I don't get to see my family. I don't get to go out for a cup of coffee. I have no time to myself. I'm under attack all the time. And actually, I'm going, basically, I'm, I'm going loopy. And I don't think I can keep doing this for more than a few weeks. And I better step down now. I've said to you before that I always seem to get this. The, she talked. She talked about how she'd become such a polarizing figure, and obviously, if you're at that level of politics anywhere in the world, you, you're going to have some people who really like you and some people who don't. But I thought there was something really quite odd about the reaction in many on many levels to her announcement. You had, on the one hand, people who are very, very supportive of her, who basically they were talking as though. A combination of Mother Teresa and the Queen had just announced that they were no longer going to be in public life. And then on the other side, you had people saying that, well, she's achieved absolutely nothing. The health service is in a mess. Schools are in a mess. Drug deaths, that was her big thing. It's gone backwards. And all she cares about is destroying the country. Okay. And there wasn't much in between. And I tried. I, I just, I, I, I was actually like you. I was abroad and I, and I got lots of phone calls saying, would you do it? I didn't do any interviews. I didn't, I'd, I'd sort of thought the story's big enough and it just sort of takes care of itself. I didn't need to kind of insert myself and I didn't feel that need. So I just did one tweet and I said um, that I, I watched her statement. I watched it back in full and I watched the press conference. And I said, whatever your party or whatever your views on independence, you have to recognize that she is a formidable politician who always speaks with great clarity and has strong values of public service. And honestly, I got messages from <laughs> some of my Labour friends, which was literally like, you know, what is it with you and Nicola? Have you got something going on with Nicola? You know, it's like, I just felt it sort of it underlined that sense of, of polarization. The question now, I suppose, that these candidates, Ash Regan is the third. Yep. Um, and, and people are describing Humza Yusuf as the, as the kind of continuity candidate. Ash Regan, I don't know much about her. I think as I, as I read it, she's the one who thinks that the next election should be a referendum on independence. Um, now, I think that may have been one of the factors that led to some of the mounting criticism against Sturgeon internally. I think now, Will it change the dial on independence? Short answer, I don't know, but I think it might. And I thought it was, it was just one of those curious pieces of timing that it happened on the, at a time when the Labour Party Scottish Conference was going on and Keir Starmer went up there and, and made his, his big speech. And it was, it was a pretty direct pitch to people who currently support the SNP to, you know, take another look at Labour. 
Um, and I think if you think, as you said, Salmon, formidable politician, Sturgeon, a formidable politician, they have both pressed pretty much every button going to try to move the dial on independence. They've had the benefit of Brexit. They've had the benefit of Boris Johnson being absolutely despised by most Scots. And it's still not really feeling like it's a, a done deal in public opinion. And I suspect this will set it back. It, it's barely moved, has it? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's extraordinary. And, and that, I suppose, is going to be the difficulty for Nicholas Sturgeon's legacy. But Nicholas Sturgeon, I mean, I've had a number of interactions with her. I, I, I debated with her on things like Question Time. I cross-questioned her in Edinburgh when I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee about her plans for Scottish independence and their foreign service. But she definitely is a more guarded less outgoing figure. She has a tight inner circle, which her husband's clearly very important part of. And and some listeners will be aware that there's been some questions about why her husband, who's chairman of the SNP, decided to just lend £110,000 to the SNP at exactly the moment when the SNP has been under investigation for whether they misspent £600,000 during the independence campaign. So there are a number of things going on in the background, which must be adding to mm. her stress. And I think also adding to the reaction to her her departure. I had a fair few dealings with her over the years. And when I last saw, uh, I know that actually when I did an interview with her for GQ magazine, and I asked her if she remembered the very first time that we met, and she did. And it was a bike. We were both on a charity bike ride. And I said in my diary that I found her unbelievably cold. And she said, when I recall this, is, well, you've got to remember back then I was just a sort of, you know, nobody had ever heard of you. You were this sort of fearsome beast of Dowdy Street. And I was just sort of petrified as to what would happen. And th- thereafter, I did find her um, actually quite warm. I'll be getting yet more messages saying, what is it with you and Nicola? But you've got to speak as you find. And I think it's possible that when we talk about disagreeing agreeably, look, you are very, very passionately anti-independence. I am moderately passionately anti-independence, but I have a better understanding of their argument. Or if, I'll put it this way. I, I get their argument better, I think, than you yeah. do, and I have yeah. more, maybe more sympathy yeah. towards it. And nobody can dispute that when she is driven by the independence cause as she is, that it comes from a genuine place. It doesn't mean she doesn't want to sort out the health service, sort out the education system, probably wishes that they'd done it better. But I think that this this is what I mean about when politics becomes so polarized that because somebody is trying to do something that you don't believe in, somehow you cannot sort of even say anything vaguely positive about them. And I just find that a bit sad. One of the beneficiaries potentially of this is going to be Anna Sawa, who we've spoken about, leader of the Labour Party in Scotland. Um, great opportunity for him now to really begin, certainly from my point of view, to make the unionist arguments more strongly, to not just talk about booting the Tories out of Westminster, but really think about how to find common mm. cause between cities in Scotland, cities mm. in England. Also, Rory, to take yeah. the debate from away, because this is what Alex Salmon and Nicholas Sturgeon have done very, very well. It's been in their political interest to have this debate focus so much on on the independence question. And actually, I think it also gives Anna an opportunity to take it away from that. But it will depend on who they elect as a new leader and the extent to which that person then wants to keep pressing the same buttons on independence. Very interesting, too, if we have Hamza Yusuf become the leader of the SNP. Because um, Anna Sawa also comes from a, it comes from a Pakistani family. Um, I think Hamza Yusuf comes from a, a Muslim family that comes from, from East Africa. But 
Anas Sawa's father, Mohammed Sawa, you'll remember, was a Labour MP, and then became the 31st and the 33rd governor of the Punjab. <laughs> so he showed it was possible to be both a British politician and a Pakistani politician at the same time. Do you think our listeners know enough about the not doing God thing? I mean, that, I, I've talked about this a lot. And I, don't know, I can't remember if you've done it on the podcast before, but just so people, because I think it does get misinterpreted. I just think it's always very, very tricky for politicians to talk about their faith. It's not like America. I think it's very tricky. And I think that's where maybe um, Kate Forbes is, is, is finding this quite, quite difficult. We're not a very religious society, are we? I mean, I, I don't know whether it's still true, but the urban myth when I was growing up is that when Britain did its census, more people registered as having the religion of Jedi than registered as being Church of England. I think we're one of the most secular societies on earth, aren't we? You'll be fired to hell for saying that, Mr. Stewart. Now, a place where that isn't always true, of course, is what we're talking about next, which is Northern Ireland. Mm. So I, I wondered whether you'd let me do just a quick minute to try to summarize where we are with the Northern Ireland Protocol and then let you come in because you've got much, much better understanding of the personalities, the Good Friday Agreement. We're both, you're very kindly inviting me along to Belfast where an anniversary is coming up. But are you happy for me to do just a brief attempt? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So fundamentally, the genius of the Good Friday Agreement was that by using the fact that the United Kingdom as a whole was in the European Union. There was no need to have a border either between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland or between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And that allowed effectively nationalist Republicans in Northern Ireland to very much feel that they were part of Ireland because there was no border between them and Dublin, but equally unionists to very much feel that they were part of the United Kingdom. And that came under threat as soon as Brexit happened. And there were three possible solutions to this problem. The first solution, which was Theresa May's, was this dreaded thing called the backstop. So she tried to propose that effectively Great Britain itself, England, Scotland, Wales, would remain in the European Union customs union in effect. So there wouldn't need to be really much of a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and certainly not between Northern Ireland and the Republic. But that was deeply unpopular with the right wing of the Conservative Party. And Boris Johnson rode to power basically on ripping up that backstop. And he instead signed a deal with the European Union in which he said, England, Wales, Scotland want to diverge, or he wanted them to, to be able to diverge very dramatically from the European Union on a whole series of things. Northern Ireland would remain very closely integrated with the European Union and the Republic, and therefore there was going to be a border in the Irish Sea. The border that he said would be at one stage built, uh, laid down over his dead body. Exactly. No sooner had he done this than coming into power, he then tried to reverse the whole thing, and he tried to pass a Northern Ireland Protocol bill where Britain was going to unilaterally kick out the agreement they'd made with the European Union and effectively say that they weren't going to keep the border in the Irish Sea and the European Union could go stuff it and decide what they wanted to do about that. He then was toppled and Rishi Sunak's come in. And Rishi Sunak is trying to do the almost impossible task of squaring the circle. And he's trying to square the circle for a couple of reasons, because the unionists are deeply in Northern Ireland, deeply, deeply unhappy about this border in the Irish Sea. And he's trying to get the institutions in Ireland up and running again. Currently, there's direct rule from, from London. Uh, and he's trying to do it in a way that also doesn't create a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. So the way he's doing it is he's trying to get the European Union to soften that border, make it mm -hmm. easier to get goods from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. But this is not remotely popular with the ERG and the unionists who are pushing to say, 
the border, basically, the border needs to be between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And they, you know, Bernard Jenkins on the record saying it's going to be a sort of invisible border or a soft border. And Simon Clark, who was um, Liz Truss's great confidant, who's in the media a lot recently, great standard bearer of this, he says, we won't sign up to anything that doesn't have the unionists with us. And that means that Northern Ireland cannot be part of the single market or the customs union. In other words, the border would have to be on the island of Ireland. Right. Enough from my explainer. Over to you. I thought it was a very good explainer. And I think that um, this all flows from a reality that many, many people, among them John Major and Tony Blair, pointed out during the referendum campaign, got a lot of abuse from the Brexit campaign for their troubles. And this it's also something we talked about in our leading interview with Michel Barnier, that the European Union was clear that they were going to protect the single market and protecting the single market threw up a very, very big problem because you had these clashing objectives. As you say, through the Good Friday Agreement, there can be no hard border on the island of Ireland. And I think even the most extreme Brexiteers kind of got that one. No customs border in the Irish Sea. And that's where Boris Johnson sold out. And also, and this is where your friend Theresa May felt she had no um, option, but I wonder whether actually she did. No British participation in the single market and the customs union. And the reason why those objectives are clashing is because you can't have all three. It's impossible. And that, as you say, is the the problem that Rishi Sunak is still wrestling with. And my sense of how he's trying to resolve it is twofold. One is through straightforward mood music diplomacy. He's being much more serious. He's being much more respectful. He's being much more polite than either Johnson or Truss. He's not playing stupid games too often through the media. And the second thing is, a, as you say, a, a kind of watering down. And put simply, that the, you'd be able to get goods that are going from GB to Northern Ireland in faster with fewer and hopefully no checks than those that are going through the Republic. And they would go through, as it were, a different process. And then the big thing about whether there's a role of the European court, that is sort of staved off somewhere down the track. And, and, and just sorry, just quickly, to, again, it's a little bit of an explainer. At the moment, the European Court of Justice has to rule on any breach of single market rules. Yeah. So, so long as Northern Ireland remains in the single market, the ECJ has this role. And the hope is, I think from Rishi Sunak, that you could fudge that in some way. So maybe right. it would be that the Northern Ireland courts could look at it in the first instance before it was referred up to the ECJ. But this is all still red rag to the bull to the unionists, because what will happen over time is if Northern Ireland remains in the single market, as Europe and Britain diverge, and they will inevitably diverge, you're going to end up with a situation where Northern Ireland is following the European Union and England, Wales and Scotland are not. So an example of that, it's a tiny example at the moment, but it's the first one that's come through, is the EU's just banned a food additive called titanium dioxide, mm. which is in a whole lot of sweets. And that is now legal in Britain, but it's illegal in Northern Ireland. And as time goes on, you'll get more and more of those things. And mm. the heart of the unionist statement is is it's not really practical. It's profoundly sort of passionately emotional. We are part of the United Kingdom. We're an integral part of the United Kingdom. We're not going to be governed by European Union rules while the rest of the United Kingdom does something else. That's right. That's the, that, that is the argument. And I think, I think fudge is the right word. And I don't, I don't mean that disparagingly because I think actually this is going to have to be resolved to some extent with a bit of political good faith. I think it's going to be very hard to square that circle in a way that satisfies the likes of 
I mean, I hear, I don't know if this is true, but apparently Braverman, Suella Braverman threatening to resign, etc. I tell you one thing I do think is quite interesting is that Steve Baker, the self-styled hard man of Brexit, and Chris Heaton-Harris, who's the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, they're both ministers in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Now, I could be wrong, but I've not heard a peep yeah. of opposition. I'm assuming yeah. that they know what's planned. I'm assuming yeah. that. I would hope yeah. so. Yeah. So is this, in the end, going to be the point at which the Conservative Party sort of buries its kind of ideology on this and also stops allowing itself. There was a reason why Theresa May was held over a barrel by the DUP. It was because of the numbers. Yeah. Rishi Sunak doesn't have that problem in relation to this issue because Keir Starmer has said that Labour will support a sensible outcome. Yeah. Well, he also doesn't have to bring it to a vote. And, and it may well, be a bit dangerous to bring it to a vote because if he brings it to a vote, Keir Starmer would love to step in and, and save the Conservative government on this issue, and it, it would be the right thing to do. But I think it would be very, very difficult for party management for Rishi Sunak if he took the thing through on a Labour vote and didn't have the majority of Conservative MPs with him. The Parliament would find a way of having a vote on this, I think. I think, look, I, I actually do, th- honestly, I, I really do believe that Rishi Sunak would do himself a lot of good if he called these people out. Um, I thought it was very interesting. George Osborne was on television the other night, and he was, I wish he'd been as scathing about Johnson during the referendum as he was in this interview. He basically said, Boris Johnson is intervening in this, not because he cares about the issue, but because he cares about Boris Johnson. He wants to bring down Rishi Sunak, and that's what this is all about. Oh, it's a completely horrifying. I mean, it's a totally horrifying. I mean, the, the fundamental point here is that this is the very recently ex-Prime Minister. It's been barely, I don't know, 120 days since this guy was Prime Minister. And he is flying out to Ukraine. He's interfering in British defense decisions on supplying jets to Ukraine. He's getting involved in the most politically explosive issue of the day, directly undermining the conservative prime minister on the issue, the most important issue in British politics at the moment, which is the Northern Ireland Protocol. It is disgusting. I mean, I cannot think of any previous prime minister who behaved like that. I mean, Ted Heath was grumpy when Mrs. Thatcher took over, but this is beyond imagining. I mean, I don't think any US president would ever contemplate doing this, particularly not someone from their own party. I mean, this is a... Well, Trump might, Trump might, I guess. Um, but no, I, listen, you're right. But the other thing is, Liz Truss made a speech yesterday, was merrily tweeting out to, she'd just been to Japan to make a speech about this thing called economic NATO. She thinks she would have done an economic NATO. And I thought there was, there was a pretty obvious irony <laughs> in that one. But then she was, then she gets on the plane, flies back, goes straight into the debate on, on Ukraine. And is standing there telling Rishi Sunak he's got to, he's got to give the Ukrainians these high speed jets. And, you just sort of think, what, where is, for both of them, where is the humility, the self-awareness, the ability to understand that every time either of them speak at the moment, yes, they'll have some followers. Simon Clark loves it, yeah. his trust. Nadine Dorries loves Boris Johnson. Yeah. For most people in the public, sorry, mate, you've had your chance. Shut up. Go away. Let this guy try and sort it out. Oh, it's, it's awful. And for Boris Johnson, it is fundamentally a game. He's playing tricky games. What he really wants to do is destroy Rishi Sunak before the next election, get himself hoovered in, pretending that he's the only person who can win an election for the Conservatives. And all the stuff that he, you know, he talks a lot about classics and he studied classics, but the stuff that he loves about classics is the horrible kind of politicking of the late Roman Republic, where everybody was stabbing each other in the back and changing their positions and whipping up mobs and crowds. I mean, he's absolutely... You know, he sees himself a kind of horrible 
people like the Gracchi, these tribune of the people who are going to bring down the prime minister and hoover himself in again. So I think it's disgusting. Don't you think that Rishi Sunak should call it out? I mean, I know that it will. people will say, well, that will just make the division sort of out there in public. But I think Sunak underestimates how much strength you have by dint of being prime minister. And he's established himself as trying to do this. He's sorting it out. And I think he could just sort of stand up and say, look, okay, ERG, you're entitled to your opinion, but you don't run the party and you don't run the government. And I've got these other things to, that I've got to sort out. This is my best bet on how we do this. I'm very grateful if, 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 if Labour are going to help me get through it. I'm very grateful that, for that. And now let's get on and do other stuff. I think you should call them out. So j- just on that, just to emphasise, I think it's a bold concept. I think you could do it. It's going to feel to him like a big gamble because what it's going to feel like at the moment is endless MPs coming in at the moment, day-marshing it. His chief whip saying, we've got trouble here. Here's another 20 MPs coming in saying they're going to kick off if Northern Ireland doesn't go right. You've got people who were in the cabinet, uh, you know, 60 days ago out there on the record attacking him. You've got the DUP whipping stuff up. You've got Boris with an amazing reach into the media. So I guess he he doesn't know. And this is the this was the problem that has been true for David Cameron. It was true for Theresa May right the way through what you can do. But my instinct is you're right. And actually, it's your instinct. It's also George Osborne's instinct. You can't placate someone like Boris Johnson. No, you can't. And, 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 and to be fair to Osborne, he said that it's a mistake that he and Cameron made, that they, they took Johnson at his word. They thought he was taking the issue seriously. He wasn't. He was just playing a game the whole time. And he will always be like that. I mean, I think the thing about Johnson, you've known him a long time. Anybody who's known him a long time knows that that is not going to change. Short of him, you know, having some kind of religious experience, which I consider highly unlikely, I can't see that changing. And I think if Sunak doesn't do this, I think he's going to have this, these groups coming in to see him. They will feel they have power over him. He will be feeding them that power. And I would even, I, I think I would even go so far at some stage as to find something like Johnson did when he threw you guys out to find something that says, right, if you don't like this, it means you don't want to be part of this conservative party that I'm leading. I see it as a vote of confidence and actually kick some of these people out. Well, the, the oh, God, it's, it's such a, um, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think he's got to do something. I mean, meanwhile, just to, just before we go to the break, we're in a position where he's trying to fudge something that feels very lose-lose. At mm. the moment, problems are emerging, genuine problems between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You have to fill in a customs form at the moment. You send a package to Northern Ireland. It's going to become difficult taking your pets to Northern Ireland. There's this famous thing called the sausage conundrum, yeah. which is the EU won't let children processed uncooked meat in from Britain and Northern Ireland. There's the ECJ oversight. And on the other hand, there's the fact that the Good Friday Agreement that you were very, very closely involved in wasn't just about the borders. It was also about the political arrangements, getting power sharing. And at the moment, that's not happening. The, mm. the unionists are just not participating in power sharing. And the fundamental political glue of the Good Friday Agreement is in trouble. I'll tell you what, though, Roy. Last time I was in Belfast at a meeting with a lot of business people, they were pretty happy with the protocol. They were basically saying, this is pretty good deal for us because we can do business both ways more easily. And the other thing they were saying is that, for God's sake, will these politicians please understand they're meant to be politicians. That actually means running the place. And you've got so many decisions that are not being taken because the politicians aren't even taking their seats. 
And, you know, they've already had the sort of, they're already in the Guinness Book of Records for one of the longest periods ever of a place without a, without a functioning uh, political government. So I think they've got to sort it out. And then the other thing, I'm going to Dublin tomorrow and I'm actually going to be seeing um, Bertie Ahern, who, Bertie's launching a podcast, by the way. Oh my goodness, there we are. He's doing a podcast about the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so I'm going out for that and I'm going to be talking to him about stuff. And I think that the, the other thing I think is the mood in Ireland, I think is, is hardening. I think, I think there was a feeling that Ireland would feel kind of so inferior to what was happening within British politics. And I don't think they do. I think they've, they've been really impressed by the extent to which the Europeans have stood by them. Been remarkable, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we shall see. But I think if, if I were advising Mr. Sunak, I would say, Call them out, show them up for what they are. You'll feel emboldened, you'll feel strengthened, and the public will respect you for it. Very good. There we are, Anastasia. Time for a break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And one of the exciting things that's happening this week uh, is we did a great interview with David Lammy, who's the Labour Shadow Foreign Secretary. And I thought somebody who you felt really impressed you, you said actually you hadn't been that wild when he'd been a very young member of parliament, came in, I think, at 26 or something, but like Hamza Yusuf that we were talking about before the break, very, very young politician, Kate Forbes too. Um, but that he's just really grown in that role and you felt that he, he was expressing himself with a lot of confidence and you were impressed, right? Yeah. It was interesting, the, the reactions as well, that I was both both looking online but also people who were kind of sending me messages. I, I kind of saw a, a slight divide and I'd be interested to know what sort of feedback you had, but I felt that the people who were very, 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 very Labour, like, you know, tribally labor activists and so forth they were sort of saying oh god i wish you'd been a bit harder over on brexit i wish you'd committed why didn't you do the 0.7 on gdp on international aid and development and then people who are not as plugged into the political world were much more on the sort of said god i really liked him i thought he was really interesting and i thought he answered your questions and i thought you both gave him a bit of a hard time at points but i thought he sort of stood up to it really well and and what and person said to me sounded very governmental, and of course often that would be seen as a criticism. Yeah, I I really encourage people to listen and maybe you know get back in touch with us and tell us what you think. I thought it was probably the most interesting interview we've done with a serving politician. We normally I normally try to avoid them because I think they're usually pretty boring stiff shirts. I'd love to know what people think about the combination between somebody with such an amazing fluency. He's he's good at being self critical. He's funny got this extraordinary backstory. He's quite blunt and direct. Mm. But equally, on the policy stuff, of course, I'm, I was less happy. I wasn't that comfortable with him refusing to really come out and say anything on the European Union. I mean, he's gone on an enormous journey. Where I found myself stuck in the middle. I was trying to, you know, I'd voted Remain, tried to argue for a soft Brexit. And David Lammy was one of my big opponents at the time, but he was on the other side. He was on the second referendum side in those days. Mm. Now he's gone right past me. And, you know, here am I still plugging away for a customs union and he's um he's rejecting it out of hand yeah so it's not going to happen yeah yeah 
Anyway, no, it was it was interesting. But I, I think the other thing that, you know, I, I read a piece the other day, I can't remember who wrote it. I read a piece about how often the real kind of reforming leaders like Thatcher and Tony Blair and so forth, a lot of the things that they do are not things that they necessarily talked about much beforehand. Yes. Mrs. Thatcher didn't really bang on about privatization much in opposition. Tony Blair didn't really bang on about public service reform too much in opposition. Yeah. And, and I, you know, so I, I suspect that what David is trying to do, what they're all trying to do, is to give a sense of you can trust us. And what he was trying to say to you, I think, in particular was, look, Rory, I'm not going to make that commitment here and now, right now, but I want you to, <laughs> I want you to read the music. I want you to look in my eyes. I want you to read my body language. That's the direction I want to go in when we get in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, it was a very, very polished performance and would love to hear what people think of the interview with David Lammy. And meanwhile, a year on from Ukraine and the special military operation, which if you had um, listened to, to Mr. Putin's speech, was all the fault of the West. It was all the fault of these Nazis in Ukraine. And there are Russians in there fighting for the human rights of people who live there. Well, it's, it's astonishing. So just to take it back, 14 months ago, really, nobody expected this to happen. Very senior people, ex-heads of the British Secret Service, former US national security advisors were out just in January of last year, saying they couldn't imagine Putin marching on Kiev. Even as the troops were massing around the borders, people still couldn't quite believe it was going to happen. And it has happened. And my goodness, what a horrible thing. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of people killed, hundreds of billions worth of damage to the Ukrainian economy, lives wrecked. But more fundamentally, this really is the moment at which all the assumptions that we carried out of the Second World War about global order, about borders, about respect for other nations' independence has been challenged. And, mm. you know, it's something that I felt very, very strongly in Africa, where as you know, everybody has a potential claim on their neighbor's territory. And many African leaders have come out and said, the problem with what Putin is doing here is that all this stuff about saying, you know, X hundred years ago, Ukraine was or was not part of some greater Russia, takes you down a very, very, very dangerous path right the way through Africa, right the way through Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, if you think about the Hungarian populations in Romania, et cetera, et cetera, you, where does this stop, right? And the, the convention since the end of the Second World War is we didn't do this stuff. We accepted the borders. No, and that's why you have, uh, you know, we talked recently about, about Moldova. And actually, I must say, we talked about Maya Sandu, the, the president who went to the Munich Security Conference. Have a look at her Twitter feed. You talk about being busy on the diplomatic front. She was meeting everybody that she could to, to make the case that, you know, Moldova needs to have support. I'll tell you who I've been really impressed with in this entire, the, the last 12 months has been the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas. I th she's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, she yeah. is really tough and she's yeah. very, very clever. I think Estonia, by the way, have given more military aid per head of population than any country in the world. It's a small country. But they're, they're right on the front line, as you say. I mean, I, I, went, I went to Estonia quite a lot and partly when I was chairing the Defence Committee because they were the first people to really start calling out and saying, we feel there is a danger that Putin could invade us. And, and, and she was told to sort of stop being silly. Absolutely. Documenting mm. back in the day, these incredibly aggressive cyber attacks the Russians were mounting against them. Mm. And of course, at that time, 
successive British governments, and I'm afraid it started with Blair and Brown, but it accelerated under Cameron and got worse under Theresa May and, and even worse under Boris Johnson, basically dismantled the British capacity for conventional war in Europe because we thought that kind of stuff wasn't really going to happen. And the Estonians mm. have been saying, and, and I think they're totally vindicated, it was almost, um, in a sense, an accident that, mm. well, not an accident, sorry. In some ways, it may be a credit to NATO and the UK and the US, who actually in the end did start to put troops into Estonia, that he went into Ukraine and not Estonia first. Yeah, yeah. She made a number of pretty powerful interventions at the Munich Security Conference. And I, I saw also she was on a, a panel with, with David Miliband, and they were both talking about this issue of, of impunity. And I thought, I thought it was really interesting as well that Kamala Harris, when she was there, and of course, Joe, we'll, we'll talk a bit about, in a minute about Joe Biden's pretty, pretty extraordinary, uh, trip to Kiev. But I thought that what was interesting that Kamala Harris, the line that she was pushing very, very hard was that Putin is guilty of crimes against humanity and that he will have to be held to account. And Kaya Callas said the same. And I just wonder how that would happen whether that is just part of kind of rhetoric at the moment or whether actually there is a way that Putin, Lavrov and the rest of them can be properly held to account. Because if they are, how do, how do they come to... Putin's the only person who can actually bring this to an end at the moment. Yeah. Well, your, your friend who you've talked about on the podcast before, and I encourage people to follow up on this, Sir Jeffrey Nice, um, has just been interviewed by Kay Burley. It's an amazing interview if people want to catch up on it where he talks about this question of war crimes and prosecution of Putin and others. It's a lovely interview because he is, <laughs> I hadn't realized until I watched him, he's a very sort of old-fashioned Donish figure, talks in the, like a you know very serious lawyer. And he's, he's sitting perched on this amazing kind of red Austin Powers style Kay Burley sofa. It's an amazing kind of contrast between, and she keeps saying, so are, are you going to, you know, are we going to prosecute Putin? He'd say, well, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, I'm not sure that's quite the right question. And then there's a huge pause. And then she says, well, what is the right question, etc." Anyway, um, so just, just, just on the Munich Security Conference, other thing that came out of it, do, do you know the Munich Security Conference well? No. Is that some, no, okay. So Munich Security Conference, I don't know it well either, is this big event all the world leaders go to. It's, a, it's almost like Davos. There's almost nobody who isn't there every year. Used to do a lot about Afghanistan in the days in which I was connected with it. But now it's been the forum for China announcing that they think they're going to bring together a peace proposal for Russia, Ukraine. And the Chinese foreign minister has been meeting with Russian equivalents. And there's also been stories that China may start supplying Russia with weapons. That, 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 came, that yeah. came from the Americans, didn't it? Exactly. And the, the Chinese haven't really gone into the question whether or not they were proposing to supply weapons, but they've said very clearly that it is an incredible insult to have the United States lecturing them on where they should or should not sell weapons. And I guess their point would be the US seem happy to send weapons to their allies all over the world and they can't see why they couldn't do the same. Yeah. But if we all accept that Putin is guilty of crimes against humanity, and these are tried at the International Criminal Court, but that court can't arrest suspects. It can only exercise its jurisdiction in countries which have signed up to the agreement and Russia is not one of those. So I don't quite see how it happens. And it doesn't happen, and it's not really very helpful. And actually, famously, the president of Sudan was convicted by the International Criminal Court and continued to rule for many, many years afterwards, mm. and in fact, continued mm. to visit other countries in Africa with impunity. So I, I don't think that will... I mean, my fear at the moment on this, and I, I'd love to get your take, is that I'm increasingly convinced by the interview that we did, um, which is coming out this coming week with the great 
a British American expert on Russia, in which Fiona Hill says that she thinks this will drag on like the Iran-Iraq war, in other mm. words, for eight years. And what was striking about the Iran-Iraq war is that Iraq was a much smaller population than Iran, so you know, like Ukraine in relation to Russia, but it had the technology and more supply from the West, and Iran had the people. And it makes that sort of grinding conflict of Russia mobilizing another 500,000 people while the Ukrainians deploy the greatest high technology in the world. And this thing never ends. But do you think that the democracies that, that form the alliance and led, obviously led by the, the United States, and I think, don't think Joe Biden could have been any clearer in his commitment by literally landing there as the sirens were blaring and announcing another half billion of military support, do you think that public opinion will keep holding through another grinding year? And then, as you say, or Fiona Hill says, and then possibly more to come after that and more to come after that, I think it gets very difficult. And that's what uh, Putin's banking on, is his time. Yeah, well, there's, there's some, some interesting things happening, aren't there? I mean, I think as Europe becomes less dependent on Russian gas, it's possible that, and, and obviously there are not European lives being lost on that. Sorry, by European, I mean non-Ukrainian lives being lost on the ground. So it is something where you can imagine it continuing for some time. I also think there's um, there's a very interesting change in the way in which the world economy is shifting in relation to Russia, Ukraine. Before this war, so if we go back just 14 months, Russia was doing almost twice as much trade with the European Union, the US and Japan as it was doing with Turkey and, and India and China. And in just 12 months, that's all flipped around. It's now mm. doing nearly twice as much with those countries. And at the same time, the predictions on what would happen to the Russian economy have proved to be, and this is what I remember in 2014 on Crimea, I remember being in meetings with people on the National Security Council predicting that the sanctions we imposed in 2014 would bring Russia to its knees. Mm. We had the same predictions this time. Back in January, people were saying it was going to be a 10% contraction in the Russian economy. And that sort of got whittled down in May to a sort of 6% contraction. It's turned out there's only been about a 3% contraction, and it looks like the Russian economy is going to be growing next year. And also, Putin, in his speech, said that the sanctions are doing as much damage to the people imposing them as they are to us, which is, I'm sure, just another piece of propaganda. It was, a, it was a, even by his standards, the propaganda levels were pretty, pretty high, but that is a fair point. Just on a lighter note, Rory, in relation to President Xi. Oh, very good. They're very good, yes. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of my favorite responses to our, our podcast last week when we talked about my mispronunciation yeah. of President Xi. Yeah, was from good. a former diplomat who said, one of my favorite ever FCO telegrams was the two-pager from Beijing after Xi became leader, <laughs> entirely focused on how to pronounce his name. It was written by a man called Peter Wilson, who was then deputy head of mission, latterly Boris Johnson's PPS in number 10, post-Partygate. And Peter's eventual verdict was Xi. And you're also, here's the key, Rory, you are meant to smile when you say Xi. Because that extends it and softens the shirt. That was beautiful. So Peter Wilson is is an really impressive diplomat. We've been praising other diplomats. Speaks beautiful Chinese. His father, David Wilson, was the governor of Hong Kong before Chris Patton. Oh, another Lord. very another yeah. another diplomat. Um, Peter, somebody who I hope one day is probably going to be our ambassador in Beijing. But he will be very impressed that you got the rising tone right there on the she. <laughs> 
<laughs> my, 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 my little mole says the telegram ends with a slightly passive aggressive comment along the lines of this man's going to become the most powerful person in the world. So I suggest we take the trouble to get his name right. That's very good. Good on the British <laughs> Foreign Office. That's what so we like. President Xi, and it's the smile. You just go, Xi. <laughs> she okay, I think you've got to go she. up okay, okay. Um, uh, so finally just before we close um, I did want to talk a little bit about biodiversity so yep. there's been a very interesting week actually with the UK playing quite a role in all of this so there was a new global biodiversity framework which has just been negotiated in, in Canada and the king King Charles has just hosted a big global biodiversity lunch at Buckingham Palace were you there? I was not there. I know I was not there. I was jumping out of a helicopter, in fact, at that very moment. Ah, I was, what, yeah, were, just, were those two events related? No, nope, they were, they were not, not related. But I'm sure my jumping out of a helicopter was probably not very good for biodiversity. No, I wouldn't have thought so. And, and DEFRA, which is the British Department for Environment, Food, Rural Affairs, managed to get 15 environment ministers flying in for an event they're organising with the CEOs of HSBC, Lloyds and others to talk about biodiversity. So biodiversity has often been the sort of poor cousin, biodiversity, in other words, being nature, the poor cousin of the debate about the environment. Because along with the question on climate is the question around species of all sorts, plants, animals, of which there has been a catastrophic drop in places like Britain. We have lost an incredible amount of our biodiversity, well over half of it in the last few decades. And biodiversity has threatened all over the world. I mean, we we see images famously from Bolsonaro's Brazil, but it's a global phenomenon. It's driven partly by climate, but it's mostly driven by us. It's driven by us, our farming practices, our pesticides, our fertilizers, which, and of course, it comes back to bite us because these things are lost forever when they're lost. Mm. What, um, when, when you said you wanted to talk about it, I, I did a little bit of research and yeah. I found this, the, the, I strongly recommend the Royal Society website. Oh, good. Has the Royal Society actually got anything to do with the Royal Family? Because the Royal Society is just a sort of science body, isn't it? It's just, a, it, yeah, it's, it's just nothing to do with the royal family, just yeah. the science body, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, it's, but I, I must admit, to my terrible shame, I assumed that the, I was aware of the crisis facing biodiversity and the, and the thousands of species that are being lost and, and the impact that has on all ecosystems, in, including, you know, humanity. Um, but I'd assumed that climate change was the big thing. And according to the Royal Society, the main direct cause of biodiversity loss is land use change, primarily for large scale food production. And they, they say that's about 30% to blame. Second factor is over-exploitation, too much fishing, too much hunting, too much harvesting for food, medicines, and timber. That's 20%. Climate change is the third most significant direct driver of biodiversity loss, which together with pollution accounts for 14%. And it does say that, you know, as the climate crisis worsens, that would obviously pick up. So it is, as you say, Primarily, this is, is, is something about farming and how we farm and how we feed ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's also the most amazing subject because we don't know exactly how many species there are on Earth. I mean, we, we guess there are something like 100 million different species. But, mm. um, but famously in, in 1980, when scientists were peering at a forest in Panama, they looked at, at 19 trees and 80% of the beetles they found there, they found more than a thousand beetles there, were previously unknown to science. In other words, they found 800 new beetle species just looking at 19 trees. Wow. So we, we don't really know how many species we're losing all the time. Or gaining, or gaining. Or, or potentially gaining. There we are. I think there's generally a net loss, generally an assumption. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. For sure. So we're generally assuming we're losing about 10,000 species a year. Um, but, but it's also true that, you know, there have been mass extinction events in the past. Uh, I think almost 99% of the species that have ever existed are now extinct. But the difference here is that this is within our control. I mean, we, we are now so dominant as the species on earth that we have the ability to save many more species than we're currently doing. And of course, each one lost is lost forever. And we feel this with iconic things like the wild tiger, cheetahs, which are, you know, really at risk at the moment, partly because of the fact they don't seem to be very good mothers to their children, slightly mm. absent-minded mothers. The rhino. The rhino or the panda on the WWF website. But it's, um, and, and the rhino, I mean, I, I, I managed to, um, very privileged when I was the environment minister, and then when I was the diffie minister, I got to meet the last two northern white rhino in the world, these funny hairy-lipped rhinos that were in Kenya, but they were unfortunately both women, and they're trying very, very hard to impregnate them with semen from a male rhino that they before he, with which they'd extract before he died. But I don't think they're having any luck. Um, anyway, so that so they will be extinct. So they will be extinct. The northern white rhino, I'm afraid, uh, will will be gone, um, and those extraordinary sort of lovely hairy-lipped creatures will not be around anymore. Anyway, the, the point is, I guess, that once they're gone, they really are gone. And mm. and getting the world more focused on what needs to be done for biodiversity. And for me, that's not just about rewilding, which is something we talk about a lot, but also about mixed farming practices, working out how we do much more nature-based farming. I'd love to see a landscape in southern England, which is much more mixed, where there are more trees, there's more woodland edges, there's less intensive use of fertilizer. I bumped into um, Ben Goldsmith. Ah, yes. Uh, brother of Zach. Yeah, big rewilding guy. Yeah, big rewilding guy. And he was he was sort of telling me, you know, that I need to get with the program properly on rewilding. And and then he said, you know, Rory's kind of he's all right on this, but he's not really in the right place. And I said, like, what is the difference? And he said, oh, well, Rory's more conservative. Rory's, with the, Rory's much more with the king. He's much more conservative about these things. I want proper rewilding. He was talking about sort of we need wild boars and wolves wandering around the place. And so one of the things, I mean, my last contact with your friend Ben Goldsmith is that... I didn't say he was afraid. I said I bumped into him. Well, so his, his impact on me is, is under his driving, beavers have now been released in Scotland. And I went down to, I got this little tiny little uh, ditch at the bottom of my hill next to my house in Scotland, which he saw. And they'd come along and they'd felled these 200-year-old oaks along the river. So I I contacted Ben and I said, look, (laughs) your beavers are felling my oak trees. And he said, well, you just got to get used to it. You know, in Norway, there's a much more diverse scrubland (laughs) landscape and this and the other. And and then he said, "Um, and anyway, Rory, um, you know, it's sometimes good for farming activity. I said, this is my septic tank ditch. They've just... (laughs) Anyway, eventually, at huge expense, somebody trapped these beavers and have moved them off to Cornwall, where they're presumably munching their way through somebody oh. else's trees. Is it right to say that he is a more radical rewilder than you? Yeah, the big disagreement here is whether you go for what I'm in favour of, which is I'd like to see the whole of the United Kingdom with much more nature-rich farming, or whether you go for what I would characterise Ben Goldsmith or George Monbiot's solution, which is areas of complete wilderness and areas of intensive agriculture, which strikes me more like the United States. We have a difference in Kansas and Alaska. Mm. Whereas I think the genius of Britain is actually that you should bring the things together in the same fields and in the same areas. Mm. There's one sentence on the Royal Society website, which I've been sort of grappling with all day. It's been estimated that unidentified species account for around 80% of species. 
That's very good. Oh, now, good. How, oh, that's how, very how, nice. Oh, some statistician needs to help you with that one. <laughs> that's nice. I like that. I really like that. <laughs> We are currently thought only to know about, actually, there's a split infinitive here. I'm not even going to read it. We're currently thought, I will correct them, to know only about 1.6 million species with around 18,000 previously unidentified ones being added to our catalogue of life annually. Right. So of the 100 million species that I claimed was around there, we actually only know about 1.6 million. All right. Okay. On that lovely note, thank you very much. That's lovely to see you. All the best. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.